0: Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate
1: Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins and prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Dupro. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission. Leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. Two lawyers and a bloke who teaches design. What a great
0: <laughs> course!
2: <laughs> this is gonna be madness.
0: Lisa Leong is a broadcaster, author and facilitator. Her colleague, Lucinda Parsons, is described her as the triple threat, smart and funny and short. She's got a background in intellectual property and technology and wine law, wow, wine law. But for the last 20 years or so, she's been working in radio in particular. She is a host of The Working Life on ABC Radio National, she presents Sundays on ABC Radio Melbourne. She co-authored books, she does design thinking work, she's inspired in a Harvard Law case study. And she's done TEDx Talks as well, too, focusing on can robots make us more human. I'm
1: excited to talk to Lisa
0: Leong. I can't wait. Let's go.
1: Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you tell us a little bit about our Series 10 sponsor? Of course, Adriano. Over the past decade, the team from A School for Tomorrow
0: has been working with hundreds of thousands of members of school communities across the world to think about the character of an excellent education. They've concentrated their learning about what makes a school thrive into a unique suite of digital survey tools called Thriving for students, teachers, and schools. To learn how you can help your school measure how well it's achieving its purpose, go to a schoolfortomorrow.com forward slash thriving.
1: Let's go. Phil, I'm terribly excited to be with you today, and of course, with our esteemed guest, uh, Phil, how is the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy treating you this morning?
0: Well, look, it's, you know, it's a, I'm glad you asked that because I'm sitting here enjoying my triple shot while waiting to talk to the triple threat. And I want a big <laughs> shout out to Rose and Pony White for, for my morning coffee and for bringing my good mood uh, in here every day. We're doing very well here in Fitzroy at the moment, Adriana. How's life over in sunshine?
1: Uh, mate, it's always glorious. It's always glorious in sunshine. The sun is shining today in sunshine funnily enough. Anyway, enough of this nonsense. Let's get to the triple threat. (laughs) Lisa, I'm going to ask you a question that we ask all of our guests uh, at the very beginning of the show. It is, tell us a little bit about your story and how you have gotten to where you are today.
2: I did start out as a litigation lawyer, but then discovered that I'm a lover, not a fighter. (laughs) So (laughs) that's how I would say that I generally roll. I am a curious person who has always gone outside whatever I was meant to be focusing on and like a bowerbird, bringing it back into the fold. So just in terms of my vibe, lover, curious, and I love the connection with others. So I've also discovered in my life I don't really like to go alone and so I tend to hover around other people get them excited about something and then create with others. So that's kind of where I'm at and how I vibe.
0: Lisa, I know that you went to, you've done a law degree at a second-rate university like Melbourne instead of a (laughs) first-rate university like Sydney. Um, You've also had a college, you know, there's a college thing there. I know you're on the the board of Ormond College as well too. But you've done a degree at at Afters at the Australian Film, Television and and Radio School, um, specialising in radio. Our producer Oliver, his girlfriend, Anastasia, has just graduated from Afters in film production. Woo! Woo, oh. indeed. Yeah, go you <laughs> stars. Can you contrast for me the educational experience of studying at one of the world's finest universities, in all seriousness, Melbourne University, and a technical institution focused very much on industry, such as afters?
2: Oh, here's the thing. Afters was excellent in terms of the technical side, so how to present a radio show, how to produce a radio show, how to press the buttons. But actually the most profound learning that I received at that school was from Steve Ahern, the head of radio at the time, who had a really good understanding that he wasn't just creating um, radio technicians but he was creating human beings and helping them find their way in the world – because actually my course, there were 12 of us and I was the one of the eldest there at the age of 33 and a lot of them um, were doing radio at a very young age. So our youngest was probably about 19 at the time. What Steve imparted to us is he asked us this question. He said, who will you be when the on-air light switches off? The on-air light comes on um, when you're recording, you get you know, especially in the media, you get known for your personality and what you put out there into the world. And actually at SAFM in Adelaide, I was known as Lethal Lisa. So that was my persona and people knew me as Lethal Lisa. But that question was something that I come back to, especially as I'm navigating my career, who will you be? when that on-air light switches off, when you are no longer in that role, because you want to be bigger than your role as a human being. And I just thought that that was really clever and what a wonderful provocation and challenge. So that was a really interesting thing for me, which is education isn't just about the pushing of the buttons. It's about how you be in the world. And I actually think Law and because I did science and law, which is a combined degree, that gave me that sense as well. So um, it's funny. I mean, I think you get that in hindsight, but what an important thing to be learning whilst you're learning your technical skills.
1: Lisa, just listening to your response there to Phil and then and the one that you had previously to to my question about your story. It struck me that Lisa Leong has a curiosity kind of uh, curiosity running through your veins. Where do you think that first was realised for you?
2: I had quite a stable experience in my early life. So the same school for 13 years, the same house for that time. And I wonder whether just having that sort of home base Mm -hmm. meant that I felt like, oh, I can explore, come back, you know, in those early days. So that's quite formative, isn't it? And that it's safe to do so. And if I stumble, you know, I kind of still feel like I've got that security And so generally I feel grounded as a person, which means that I can be brave when I go out. Mm -hmm. I don't have that fear around the unknown. And I certainly am super comfortable with beginner's mind. So I have no shame. I don't really embarrass easily. I have a laugh at myself. I don't take myself seriously. And what it means is that when I try something and I'm a novice, you know, that that uncomfortable feeling of Mm -hmm. I don't know, I'm cool with that. I'm cool with people going, wow, you really don't know. Okay, yeah, I know, I don't. (laughs) I'm not embarrassed by that. And um, I do get excited by other people's passion. So design thinking, blending that with the law, it was quite early days when I started playing around with, gee, why, why wouldn't design thinking fit with a law service? You know, that seems to fit. Why is, you know, in the early days, why are we not focusing on this? And so I went out and I met lots and lots of people um, at Stanford and the like who are doing design thinking and then, you know, I was got absorbed in it like a sponge and then I brought it back and I thought, hey, does anyone else want to play? Yeah. So that's where that Harvard case study came about.
1: In your 2017 TED Talk, you explored can robots make us more human? And apart from realising that there is this kind of super small market for wrapping lawyers, <laughs> which I love, <laughs> by the way. Um, you, you shared how you've used design thinking to shape mo- more than 40,000 lawyers hours spent on unproductive time. I mean, save, save that time, yeah? Some saw the AI revolution as a gift, while others saw it as a threat. How can we double down as more human?
2: Oh, there's so much wrapped in that. Because it is about that sense of being okay with uncertainty mm-hmm. and possibly disrupting yourself. So a lot of the time, the fear around change, particularly in those early days, and you know it's a while ago now, so I do think absolutely things have changed, but in the early days it was... If we ask these questions that our clients have started asking, so the questions are, hey, can this actually be done without a lawyer? <laughs> so, right, that's pretty scary. It's like, oh, and we're cannibalizing our own service here. I mean, that was the provocation that I was putting out is why wouldn't we stand beside our client and ask these terrifying questions? And then maybe, yes, certain services don't exist anymore and we have to think of other ways. But wouldn't you rather do that, standing beside your client, than getting a phone call one day saying, oh, by the way, that whole area of law, we don't need you anymore. So that was sort of the thinking. But, you know, I can say that very easily, but it's so hard to experience it. And, you know, it's pretty, you know, it's scary. You have to be okay with that. Um, and so, you know, I think that was the thinking behind that TED talk and also the exploration. And then the, the leap of faith then is this idea of empathy. Mm-hmm. So my question was when you think about AI, what can humans provide mm-hmm. or lawyers provide that actually AI can't? And the most human trait is that sense of empathy And understanding of another human being, you know, that little buzz that you get when you've Mm -hmm. connected with someone, I wanted to tap into that. And lawyers have that absolutely. But it's that you've got to actually sit with unknown when you're asking a question of someone that you genuinely are curious about. There's just that little moment of being in that space, being present. And not being the one who has all the answers, because it's an expert's mindset that we're trying to bring awareness to. When you're the expert, people want you to talk, but then how do you hold yourself back from knowing everything because you don't know everything? And so that's that's that other sort of layer of lawyer, expert, scientist, whatever you are. How do you hold that lightly?
1: Maybe maybe they they felt that um, threatened by by the uh, the onset of AI because they were going to lose. 40,000 billable hours, you know.
2: Yeah, and and then the twist is is that actually work that you want to be doing? Mm. Because this is why AI can be a gift if we look at it in a way that says when we release because that 40,000 hours it was actually low low value, high volume work to be mm. honest. And you know, when I was a junior lawyer, it was drudge work. And, you know, I cognitively crafted it in my own head to make me feel like I was contributing to the bigger, you know, that's the way you deal with these things as a junior lawyer. But to be honest, I mean, most of the time I was scanning pages looking for keywords Mm -hmm. and, you know, that took me hours of my life and a computer can literally do that in two seconds. So why wouldn't I use that computer and then actually learn how, you know, what do I do with that information? I mean, actually, there was, when I was a summer clerk, um, my job was to flick through about 30 years of Vogue magazines looking for a particular ad to show that a trademark was used in Australia. So it was an overseas brand. Now that literally took my whole summer clerkship. I sat in that library just flicking through pages of Vogue's. Now I actually enjoyed myself because it was quite entertaining. (laughs) But yeah. was that the best use of a human being's time? I don't oh, know. So, look,
0: it's probably better than if you, if you had to read through 30 <laughs> years with the Dolly magazine, but, you know, it's just, just, barely, just really. really.
2: Yeah. That was the second summer so, clerkship, actually. So
1: that, that, oh. that, what, what you've been sharing with us it leads me to my next question because what you're illustrating is the tension in the evolution of the world of work and, you know, people enter into that space feeling that they've developed a particular and they've got particular skills that they're going to bring to that space. And then, of course, technology comes into it and shifts the game and becomes this disruptor that some run towards, uh, some are indifferent about, and some, of course, are are really resistant by because they feel that their relevance is now being taken away. So much of the work that you do Uh, with, you know, uh, ABC Radio hosting The Working Life is around this notion of what's happening in in the world of work. And and in addition to that, you've co-authored a book with Monica Ross, Uh, the book's titled This Working Life, funnily enough. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... Nailed it. I want you to think about now in the context of our young people, our young people in our primary and secondary schools, how do you think we can then best support them to become future fit mm. and stay relevant and competitive in a future of work, which is currently right now, that is in a constant state of evolution?
2: I always challenge that question. Um, hey, what will you be when you grow up? You know, what mm. are you going to do? And it, I'd change it to who. Yeah, yeah, who do exactly. you want to be? And what that ultimately means. And like the subheading of the book is this working life, how to navigate your career in times of uncertainty. Now it used to be how to navigate your career in times of chaos. That's what I wanted, but actually that was too scary. So it's just uncertainty. But what it means is careers are no longer linear. There is no one place for life. So what are you going to use to navigate yourself and really – It's about grounding. We call it get rooted. (laughs) (laughs) So um, what we mean by getting rooted.
0: I just just need to jump in here for a moment. For our overseas listeners right now, (laughs) in Australian culture, the word root means something quite different to the word you might think it means.
1: Yeah. Um, And I just
0: encourage you to Google the Australian (laughs) sense of the word root and you'll see why all three of us are are giggling like school kids right now.
2: Ridiculous. <laughs> get rooted. And, and actually when I read it out for Audible, I did it like, get rooted.
0: Oh, even better, <laughs> even better.
2: <laughs> so what, 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 what do we do when we're grounding ourselves in this way? And I think, you know, thinking about things like curiosity, compassion and courage, those sort of values, I mean, you can call them values or you can use that as a philosophy, if you keep them centrally, then you will navigate your career by really always centering yourselves on these values. And I did science and law at university, a combined degree. And the main thing that I learnt in science is every day is lab day. So when you run an experiment on a hypothesis, on a theory, what you're looking for is to test that theory. And if the experiment fails, you don't fail, you're not a failure. Experiment fails and, in fact, it's more powerful to get a negative result because you know, oh, okay, I'm at the edge here. When you get a positive result, you just got to keep on asking questions because you haven't actually reached the boundary yet. You haven't got there. So I think that mindset is super important because if every day is lab day, then when you get that job and you hate it, when you've recovered from that, <laughs> then you can say that's data. That's really interesting because – what have I bumped up against there in terms of my own self that you know it didn't suit me? And then like a detective, you can find out more. You're going to get closer to that beautiful sense of flow when you're in, you know, doing the job that you love doing.
0: Lisa, I'm listening to you talking. I'm listening to you engaging with, with Adriano and tackling some really big questions here, which are fundamentally about the nature of humanity in our times and the type of character that you need to deal with it. So much of the picture of the future that's being presented to us in popular fiction and, or, or, or popular discourse, probably is a better way of putting it now. You know, since the 1890s, really since H.G. Wells and the, the War of the Worlds and, and so on, is a dystopian picture. It's a picture which is about negativity. It's, about, it's a picture which is about mistrust. It's a picture which eventually gets to hope because of the character of the people concerned. But it's, it's, it's almost like a now Luddite thing. It's like coming out of the deep, you know, the, the deep bowels of the sort of Rousseau and the return to nature in the, in, the, in the 19th century. How can we paint a picture of the future for ourselves that involves technology and science and law and the future and everything rushing towards us which can give us hope rather than the opposition to hope.
2: I have been writing about the second renaissance with Monique Ross in our book. And what we wanted to paint a picture of was, in a way, let's put our rose-coloured glasses on and say that the first renaissance came out of a dark time when a creative collective of really, really different people, so artisans, musicians, financiers, scientists came together to create that sense of hope and creativity. And so we're asking, could this possibly be a moment where we have a second renaissance, where beautiful things emerge, which is so much bigger and better than anything we could have imagined because we joined forces together? So that's the ray of hope from the emergence from dark times, because it can bring us closer together. Otto Sharma from MIT says, you know, in this moment, we can either turn away from, or we can turn towards. And we turn towards, he says, by cultivating an open mind, an open heart, and an open will. And that curiosity, compassion, and courage that I spoke of, that's how you turn towards.
0: Okay, so there's a turning towards, there's an openness, there's a, there's a courage, there's a compassion. What you're talking about there is character and, and you're talking about the character. We would regard this as the character for thriving in the new world environment. And in particular, your, your point about courage is is really, it's essential. Um, mm. uh, you know, Adriana and I are, are, are working on a book right now, which will be published later this year. And the very end point is all about courage. Mm. all about courage. It's all about how to take the big step up and yeah. forward. But when we break down this character, when we break down these qualities that you're talking about, it comes down to a series of competencies or skills mm. yes. that we can use to demonstrate. What are the skills that are going to help young people to thrive in this world and retain a sense of hope about the future? Improv. Like what we're doing now. Absolute improv.
2: <laughs> So um, there's you know, a guy I call the Professor of Improv, Dan Klein. He teaches at Stanford University in the business school and he also teaches people in business. And why I love applied improv is it absolutely helps you pay attention to your conditioning and then it helps you once you get that awareness to think, mm, that's really amusing. How might I free myself from that, from the shackles of that? Uh, An example of an improv game, which is really powerful, is Yes And, uh, which you may have played before. So you do two rounds. The first round is whenever I come up with an idea, I'm going to plan a party, then you will always answer, yeah, but, and you will come up with a reason why my party idea is terrible. And in fact, Adriano, can I play with you? Have you ever done it before?
1: Let's do it. Okay.
2: Okay. Uh, well, let's do it, Adriana. So I'm going to go me. Then Adriana, you'll say, yeah, but, and come up with uh, why it's a terrible idea. And then give me an alternative. And then Phil, you'll listen to Adriano's suggestion. You'll say, yeah, but, you'll poo-poo his idea, and you'll come up with an alternative. Okay? So we'll just do, yeah, but. Oh, guys, I just really want to do a party with you. I've got a great idea. Let's do a barbecue by the Yarra. Adriano.
1: Yeah, but the Yarra is such a cesspool of mud and, and gunk and filth. Surely, um, you know, there's a better alternative. I, I think let's abandon the river and let's have it in St Kilda at Port Phillip Bay.
0: Yeah, but St Kilda? Really? <laughs> when you could do the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy and
1: Edinburgh Garden.
2: <laughs> hey, right. Now, so how do we feel about that?
1: Well, that's, not, that, that, that's an absolute nonsense. Who would want to go have a barbecue by no water in Fitzroy? <laughs> we, have, we have water in Fitzroy. You know? Yeah, yeah, Just... yeah. It's running through your drains perhaps, but that's about it.
2: The one thing I would say about that round is it feels like when you – have a normal brainstorm with people around the table. So we, um, I've done it with um, Telstra and the lawyers there just had this beautiful insight and one of them said, do you know what? We're intellectual piranha. So we get around a table, somebody throws out an idea and we gobble it up until nothing's left. And it's with it. it's It's done kind of out of kindness. It's like, no, I don't want you to waste your time. I've mm. done this before. It'll never work. So it's not done with any malice. It's just that we filter things. That's how we condition. And, you know, when you're smart, when you're intelligent, then you can think three steps ahead, risk profile. Okay, so second round. This is yes and, this is improv. So what happens is we're going to plan a party. I will start first. And Adriana, I'm going to throw to you and you're going to pretend that that was the best idea that you've ever heard. And you'll say yes and... You're going to build on it to make it bigger, crazier, wider, right? Okay, so we're going to do yes and. I'm just going to come up with a completely different scenario. We're going to plan a party, Adriano, and then Phil. And then Phil, of course, you're going to pick up Adriano says yes and, and then we're going to make it bigger and better. So, hey, guys, I really want to do a party with you. I think we should all go into a hot air balloon together. (laughs)
1: Yes, and I think that hot air balloon should be over the savannah in Africa (laughs) because, I mean, you know, the danger and the tension of being up in that balloon and seeing that vast plain and knowing that if we crash, we're lunch but not our own. But I'm still excited about the prospect of seeing those wild animals in their wilderness.
0: Yes, and don't forget to bring the snacks and the pinotage. Absolutely. Everything would be just hunky-dory. There you go. Love it, Lisa. Lisa, I, I have a question for you, Kate. We've just been playing. Yes. All right. And um, our, our, our good friend, sounds really pretentious saying it about Parsi Salberg, but our good friend Parsi Salberg, who's leading thinker on, on education and schools and school reform around the world, argues passionately for unstructured time and the, and the presence of play in the lives of children. Mm. We spend our lives filling up our children's time from the moment they wake up to the moment they fall asleep and leave them no time for play. How can we convince ourselves that we need to play and, and that play is valid and that, and, and that we should be encouraging children to play and adults for that matter?
2: Oh, yeah, I think everyone. Um, we need that space, absolutely, absolutely and uh, well it's there is a technique that i've been using uh to encourage that space in my life called time boxing have you been have you heard of time boxing go so on tell, of having, us, tell us uh, lisa instead of, so it comes from near isle and he wrote the book indistractable and he actually wrote uh, the first book Um, which is used throughout the whole of Silicon Valley about how to get people's eyeballs and get them really hooked in to uh, using computers and using technology and apps. Now, he didn't want his first book to actually be used that way, so then he wrote Indistractable as a kind of antidote. Anyway, instead of having a to-do list and then just trying to sort of um, cross it off, What you do is you get your diary and you schedule in blocks of time according to your values, according to the things that you really want to do, your priorities. So I have blocked out time of nothing. And even though you look at my calendar and it looks frightening because it looks like I've got every hour of the day blocked out, actually, you know, blue means space or, you know, and it could be you put health in there, you put in the playtime, you know it's for me it's it's catching up with people who are not in my industry you know learning about different things so you put that in first in a way that's what people have been doing like google has its google time where you can play you can experiment on things which seemingly don't have anything to do with google or work but it does right because that's where you're making those connections that's what creativity is so in schools you know can you have that space in the timetable which says hey play And you know, so I have a daughter who's thirteen, and we don't actually have any activities after school planned, because of that sense of wanting to ensure that she just has time.
0: And Lisa, I I hear what you're saying there. Mm. Um, Google has its playtime. Eighty-five percent of Google workers don't take their playtime. I have I have my Mondays. Adriano has been trying to encourage me for two years now to take Mondays as a space where I can do my own thing be in my own space do some work do some thinking etc 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 but as he well knows um that that unfilled up monday very quickly gets filled up and yeah. you know somebody sends me the admin email and i respond to it instead of ignoring it or so on and so on so it we seem to live in a world that complains about busyness but then we all do our best to ensure that we're busy all the yeah. time that we're occupied all the time it's And, you know, if I go back to, you know, the uh, uh, guy who wrote the indistractable thing, (laughs) indistractable, certainly not Adriana and me, but um, that's the the indistractable thing, which is about eyeballs on, eyeballs on, eyeballs on. Actually, how do we shut the eyeballs? How do we not engage? How do we switch off? How do we give our time, self-time to rest and relax and process the world around us? It's getting so busy all the time. Talk, talk to me about busyness, Lisa. How do we how do we how do we deal with this cult of busyness?
2: And I love that um, little ch- you know compassionate challenge there because you know I keep on coming back to this: is it's all good and well to say it, but what are we actually doing in practice? And um, so another little thing that I play around with, with is you know what's known as the atomic habits, micro habits, tiny habits. Um, these little things that I do. That I don't have to think about. So, starting from, you know, when I wake up in the morning just to make sure that I'm not checking my phone first thing, I just have a habit of going straight into the lounge room. You know, I'll put on the kettle, I'll go into the lounge room, and I just, without thinking, just start doing at least some stretches um, and activity that is like second nature now. And that just helps me not fall into traps. So, I just try and build things in where I can't help but not be naughty or busy. And then every so often, so I don't talk about work-life balance. I actually talk about work-life coherence, which is like um, heart rate variability. So we actually are looking at this sense of a s- tweaking, dialing up, dialing down, not massive change. I don't look at my life and go, oh, no, you know, I don't have work-life balance. I really need to change everything. I just kind of go, oh, am I a bit off? (laughs) Like, have I gone too far, you know, with the busyness? Because I've got excited and I've said yes to a billion things. You know, have I gone just a little bit too far? (laughs) And then I just try and dial it back a little bit. So it's a, I don't know, there's no answer, but I would say that this is our humanness and it's messy and that's okay as well, and not to be so harsh on ourselves about it.
1: There's so much in what you're sharing around life harmony, and uh, and there's an intentionality about it. I feel that's coming through. So I'm just going to take you back a little bit. You're going to have to indulge me here a little bit about you introduced the notion of the Renaissance a moment ago, and um, I want to talk a little bit about the Statue of David in that context. Michelangelo's David is kind of this expression of the Renaissance sense of life, but he breaks away from convention. It's not a traditional representation of David in any 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 real meaning. He does not present us with the winner, you know, with the giant's head on the ground and the, the powerful sword in the hand. He doesn't do that, but he portrays a young man in the phase immediately preceding the battle. And Michelangelo chose to show David not in victory, but at the point in time, Prior to the victory, in that instance, when an individual decides, makes a choice, and then commits to act on that choice. And the statue, this statue, and David's story are kind of reminders of us of the powerful uh, nature of, of self efficacy or self belief and the freedom of thought and expression. It's kind of heroic both in its intent, which is the opportunity, and the action, which is the participation. So much of what I'm hearing you share with us and our listeners today is intentional, but it's 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 supported by action, active participation in life. When did Lisa Leong discover the value of intentionality and then the value of living that out?
2: Do you know you, that that made me very emotional? The um, description there, Adriano. So thank you. Um, absolutely beautiful. Um, uh, there was a turning point for me when I was working as a lawyer and I'd, it had taken me to London and I was doing e-commerce law. It was very sexy because, you know, there was lots of money, internet bubble, uh, and I was flying around uh, with the rollout of interactive digital TV. But then the internet bubble burst. And the financiers lost their money and I lost my clients and I was put on to these due diligences. What that is in practice is a whole airless windowless room with lots of folders. And as an information technology lawyer, I had to review all the contracts for hours and hours. But I was already 30 by this stage. And I thought, you know, I've been actually waiting for a tap on the shoulder for someone to say, you don't belong here, really? Like I liked it. But... There was a part of me saying there is something else for you. But sometimes you've got to tap yourself on the shoulder. (laughs) So I actually took my discretionary time uh, and instead of emceeing Christmas parties for my law firm, (laughs) I said to my friends, look, I'd like to volunteer. Has anyone got any ideas? And somebody said, hey, hospital radio. What's that? I said, the hospitals are so big in London. They have radio stations broadcasting to the patients. The local one was called Charing Cross Hospital. I volunteered on Monday Night Bingo. I got my flying time up. They trained me and I got my own show, Thursday Night Therapy with Lisa Leong. I interviewed all my friends. I interviewed my friends of friends. The show became really popular and I don't know whether that was because it was a captive audience but in this hospital. But I just thought I want to be a radio presenter. So the moment that I decided that, put my demo tape together, I sent my tape out to about 50 radio stations and I just got a heap of rejection letters. Now that, I was, I can kind of laugh at it now, but I was so distraught, I was ruminating and I thought, you know, imposter syndrome, it was like, why would they put this bogan accent on London radio? What was I thinking? I'm a lawyer and I am going to be a lawyer. And so the turning point for me was saying... Hang on, the people who are making these decisions, the program directors, are really busy. What is the likelihood that they haven't even listened to my demo and they're not actually consciously making a decision? So I found out that the program director for Liberty Radio, the largest AM footprint radio station in the whole of London, also did the breakfast show and he was there by himself on the weekends. So I took the first train out and I thought, I'm going to go and meet this guy. It, and I just was sleeting, it was freezing. I walked up and I looked at that building and I thought, I've got to press this doorbell. But you know that moment where you're like, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. And I was scared and I thought, okay, what's the worst that can happen? Lawyer brain. He could call the police. He could answer and be really rude. And then I'd be really sad because that would hurt. Or he just wouldn't answer. I listened, he played a song, ding dong, he answered, and I just thought, I've got to do this. Mm -hmm. Hello, it's Lisa Leong, I'm a radio DJ, can I make you a cup of coffee this morning? The door buzzed, he let me in. I made the cup of coffee, he said sit down, and then he talked to me between breaks. I then went home. The next weekend, ding dong, hi, it's Lisa Leong. I'm here to make your a cup of coffee. He let me in. This time he put me on the air. I was on the air across the whole of London on this brekkie show and I did it every weekend until he was so sick of me. He gave me my own show <laughs> on a Sunday. <laughs> and there I was. And that launched my radio career. That's how I got into afters off the back of that demo
1: right.
2: and all those hours.
1: The character of Perseverance. Absolutely, can, Lisa, yeah.
0: Lisa, can I pull some of all of this together? Because at some point, we've actually got to talk about schools. <laughs> allegedly, that's what we're here for. We're here to talk about a school for tomorrow and all of that sort of stuff. Um, if I if I pull all of this together and I pull together like your wonderful stories, you, you, you see, so you tell a yarn, you know, spin a yarn really, really well. And it, there's poignancy, there's empathy, there's compassion, there's all that human connectedness and, and relatedness, as Adriana pointed out there. There's so much we've talked about. There's perseverance, there's improvisation, there's play. Implicit within all of this has been um, collaboration. There's also a structure piece here. You know, there's an analysis piece. I'm like, You know, you've got to be prepared to define the new rules or work out whether or not the old rules still apply. And so put all these sorts of things together, and we're talking about the character and competency of a person who can thrive in the new world environment. It's a world environment which, as we've said, there's... A lot happening. There are you know, very swift advances in technology. There's demographic shifts. There's rapid urbanization. There's shifts in global and economic power. Not all of this is bad, of course. We're seeing rapid improvement in rates of absolute poverty around the world. And yet that brings its own challenges as well as we see globally the shift towards uh, an increasing middle class and the education that's required around that. We've seen people grapple with resource scarcity and climate change. There's so much going on right now. The old monastic school model is broken. There's a new social contract of education. We would call it today's learning for tomorrow's world. How can we better engage school leaders, school systems, school communities in having the courage and the compassion and the hope to engage with and meet this new social contract for for education? That's a simple little question at the end of a, a wee <laughs> chat. Uh,
2: and, uh, yeah, I was feeling uh, a whole mixture of emotions as you were going through that, that sense of um, overwhelm. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, even when we were talking about busyness and the amount of things flying around, uh, it, it feels like it's too much at times, doesn't it? And so in the work that I do, um, I often say, you know, there is no b to b There's no business to business. It's H to H, human to human. And so the way I approach things and particularly change, which is what you're ultimately talking about, is that to understand, you know, maybe using systems thinking, that if you change one part of the system, everything changes. And that one part is you. So how might we be in the world and how might we control the thing that we can control, which is our own way of being, and exhibit that and then something else will change. So the people around us then feel that change in energy and then they change. And so if we understand that, you know, schools are really human beings (laughs) and how do we gather the people around us to do something, try something a little bit differently, see what might change, prototype that, you know, have a go. This is the lab. Rather than sort of looking at the whole thing and going, I am overwhelmed. I don't know what to do.
1: So, Being maybe open to that something. trial and error.
2: Yeah, I think so.
1: And yeah, then you learn
2: from that, right? You've got yeah, to learn. look. It's, it's
1: but it was different. interesting that you mentioned that the, the, the H to yeah. it's and the change is you. Mm. There's a, a requirement there for us in this time of uncertainty to have place for our own introspection on a regular basis and our own evolution, if we're not prepared to be open to our own personal evolution, there is no way known that we can lead them communities to be open to their evolution.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think start. you start, so I've got a little um, sideways eight in my head at the moment that's just emerged. And, and so the you go through a loop and there's interior and then the second part of the loop is exterior, so this interior is the introspection and the exterior is the engagement with other and i think you know if you can see your life as sort of this ebb and flow of you know those moments where yeah you do actually need to stop be still and then you come out and then you're still engaging and creating and then just make time though for the other half
0: yeah that's that inner drive and external expectation we would call that the wrestling you spend your life wrestling between mm. the two and and mm. and the, the the character and the competency that we talked about earlier it comes in the wrestling um but if you give up on the wrestling if you don't engage with it going around you put your hands up and go it's just too much I, I'm, I'm not doing this I'm, I'm out then you can't thrive in the world but you also need time to stop. You also need time to play. You also need time to relax. Final Hang question on. for you, Lisa
2: Phil, Phil, Phil. Are we wrestling with other people? Because I'm a very small person.
0: And that's, that's no, a no, really no, scary no, analogy
2: no. that you're
0: no, presenting to me there. Small, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> small wrestlers are very, very powerful. Exactly. And small wrestlers and small dogs as well. Small dogs are very powerful. Um, that's right. Um, what is your personal sense of the future? How do you see yourself evolving as a person and as an active citizen? And can you tell us what you've been doing since you completed a short course in fencing?
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, I see part of my curiosity is that I sign up for all these crazy short courses. So I've done Flemish, fencing, African drumming, you know, you name it. Well, I'm Um,
0: glad you said African drumming because there was a lot of F words in there. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Did you wonder where where's she going with this? Yeah. Uh, I'm French, maybe I should say that. <laughs> <laughs> I did do French as well. Um, oh, you know, the thing about the future is that I'm a pretty present person. I mean, namely because I've got the world's worst memory, so I tend to be in this moment and then in this moment. So I don't think too much about the future. But in terms of I, I'm not Pollyanna. I see the darkness, but I look for that crack where the light shines in, the Leonard Cohen sort of the Leonard um, Cohen thing. vibe. Leonard Cohen Oh, yeah, you went right.
0: there. No, actually, no, I'm going to get emotional now.
2: <laughs> so even though I don't know what the future is, I kind of lo- am looking for that crack where the light shines in. Uh, so I think that's, you know, important. And if, In fact, I'll tell you why I don't talk about the future. I, I did computer law, it was 1993, we got shown the internet for the first time <clears throat> and it was like green screen and it was hooked up with another university. We all came out and I turned to the whole class and I said, ah, the internet, it'll never catch on. <laughs> and, from <that> moment, <laughs> and from that moment, I have not forecast the future.
0: There it is. So that's like that's like that's like Adriano tipping
1: that Carlton will win the AFL this year. <laughs> I, I actually haven't tipped that they're going to win this year. I just hope that we win a game. Uh, that will be a starting point.
2: Oh, there you are, a fortune teller,
1: <clears throat> Lisa. Yeah, yeah, Lisa. Uh, it has been an extraordinary conversation. Uh, it's been a real privilege to be in your presence and your orbit today. I feel we could have an entire series with Lisa Leong. Uh, you are you are terribly engaging and you have a skill in storytelling that brings such compassion to the words and and the mission of each story. So I want to say to you, the story of David that I shared earlier, I think it's now your story. And it's ultimately a lesson around curiosity, compassion, and courage in overcoming what seems impossible, which you do on a regular basis. And if we want to talk about the future of the world of work, just look at Lisa Leon and that her horizon, she doesn't want to talk about the future, but the horizon for me is really clear. It's one of deep optimism. And if we, approach, if we approach optimism with intentionality and then action, then we can be the hero of our own story. I think that's our ultimate freedom, right? So, Lisa, thank you very much for being part of Game Changers. I can't wait for our audience to hear this.
2: And... Um... If you look at your doorstep, there's a nude statue of me, which I've just seen
1: here.
0: (laughs) Okay. I'm just just, just wondering what your next little neighbours are going to make of that, mate.
1: Well, you know, look, you know, I do live in the West and there's a lot of statues of lions and and things like that on people's houses. So, you know, little Lisa is just going to be featured part of that. Little Lisa. (laughs) Little Lisa. Thank you very much, Lisa.
2: Thank you, Adriano. Thank you, Phil.